decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Found Tech Decoded podcast. I'm delighted on this episode to be talking to Sarah King, who's the co-founder and CEO of Obu. On the podcast, we have heard repeatedly that the venture capital ecosystem, despite all the progress we've made around diversity and bias, is still heavily skewed towards white males in London who receive the majority of the capital. This becomes more acute when you start to understand that probably 1% of uh, all venture capital goes to female founders, and then even worse, when it's around, uh, Sarah, correct me if I got this wrong, 0.024% of uh, minority um, female founders. And so here to step into this and to, for us to actually explore this properly on the podcast, we've touched on it many times, but as someone who's thinking about this problem and trying to resolve this problem every day through Obu, which um, enables female um, uh, founders to um, to be able to kind of not only uh, source that capital, but I'm assuming source that capital so it's aligned and understands their perspective and nurtures the next stage of their journey. So, Sarah, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's, it's lovely having you here. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So, Sarah, can you talk about why you um, look to address this problem and why you sort of made it the thing that you think about when you wake up and and, and what you think, you know, are the big challenges of, of, of tackling this problem? Yeah, of course. So, um, and I love the way you've described it because you're right. It literally kind of fills our brains with nearly every waking moment. Um, so I guess like a lot of entrepreneurs, building Obu has come from our own personal experience of raising investment for our own business. And then kind of looking at that experience and saying, okay, what's going on at a macro level? What's going on in the in the broader market? So today at Obu, we've raised three quarters of a million via angel investment um, on our journey so far. And I guess there's been a number of things that have been true about that experience. You know, firstly, we hit up against our seed enterprise investment scheme deadline with just 48 hours to spare. And that caused us to kind of say, hang on a minute, why is that piece of legislation? Why does that legislation enforce a two year deadline? Then looking at our angel network kind of back in the day when we did our first investment round and going, you know what, we haven't really got one. And, and those people that we do know, they're great, but they're really homogenous in their background and their experiences. And I guess it was looking at those things. And then, as I said, kind of scaling that up from a macro perspective where we went, there's some real inequality here. And for us, we've always really believed that business can be a force for good in the world. And, and that intersection of, you know, we want to build a scalable highly commercial profitable business but we also believe that at the same time we can build a business that is a force for good and can have positive societal impact and and I guess those are some of the the drivers that kind of personal experience then scaled into that macro environment that caused us to say you know what there's a meaningful problem to to solve here and I guess for both Claire and I my co-founder and I we like getting out of bed every day to come into work to solve a really gnarly challenge. Yeah, I, I, I've seen you say, um, and again, this is a phrase that comes up in various ways, that 
investors should start to think about what's the future that they want to bring into the world, particularly your angel investment. That should almost be the primary motivation. Do you want to maybe sort of unpack how that feeds into into that that kind of deeper motivation like that that bringing because it's it, it, once you start thinking of it like that it, then the investment becomes this kind of very exploratory creative act yeah. right yeah yeah a hundred percent and i guess the the kind of phrase or the sentence i like to use is angel investing is about placing a bet on the types of business businesses that you want to see exist in the world. So we know that angel investing is a high risk asset class. So you could angel invest and lose all of your money. And, and therefore it has that sort of place in a bet feel to it. Now, of course, there are things that you can do around due diligence and, and maybe we'll get onto that in a bit, but it's really about saying, what types of businesses do I want to see exist in the world? Therefore, what types of problems do I think should get solved? And the reality is, the more diverse our entrepreneurs are who are receiving investment, the more diverse the problems will be that the world of business solves. And that's really, really important and why we see so many problems that frankly have gone untapped and unsolved for such a long period of time and why on the flip side of that there is such an exciting economic opportunity innovation opportunity problem solving opportunity to say you know what let's let's cast the net wider let's look at entrepreneurs who are solving a different problem set and let's really think about how we back them where what you're really doing as an angel investor is saying, you know what, I would love for that problem to be solved. And if that problem gets solved, the world is a better place and that business becomes successful. You know, and the reality is the wealth generation that can occur as a result of a business being successful, that opportunity should be diversified to a broader audience. Yeah. Um, can I add a, a, another sort of, inflection on that which is it's also the nature of problems that need to be solved now require different perspectives because so an idea that's come up and I, and I, I, I am no fan of the pitch deck I understand its uses but the idea is that the, the, the pitch deck it engineers through its very sort of mechanics and structure and the way it's evaluated in the venture capital space, you know, what the why why it exists is to so to to be able to evaluate sort of horizontal B two B SaaS primarily opportunities, you know, that are um, through a pitch that can be kind of flagged and then work down that funnel, you know, all the way through to sort of you know ten being invested in say a year, you know, and and, and then invariably they they'll say it's only we only need one to work um, and cover all bets, but what's come out. This much more interesting that feeds into what you what you've just said is that actually there is a diminishment of those opportunities, um, and the, one of the reasons why they sort of the the, the changes around that we that we sort of talk around the label of founder tech are occurring are because actually it is becoming economic, and you know you, you touched on that. It becoming it's becoming in people's interest to start to understand there is this sort of shallowing of those opportunities in those pitch decks. And so you need to go to other sets of entrepreneurs who are mining a phrase that's come up again, again called scalable niches, you know, that are deep inside these scalable niches who live inside them in the way we talked about you, you live inside your, your problem set that are experiencing them have 
reputational capital in them, have networks, have a way into that that's unusual, and that those are the founders that need to be surfaced and backed. I'm assuming that builds on what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I love that descriptor of scalable niche. Um, it's I, I think it's really interesting, the whole conversation around Pitch Deck. And, and I agree with you. Yes, they serve a purpose. But, but for me, they are a storytelling aid. And, um, you know, the, the ability of a founder to convey their passion and their drive and their grit, which is what you want to see from an early stage founder, there's an element of that that can be conveyed in a pitch deck. But actually, where you get that is when you can sit in front of that entrepreneur and you can see them lean in and maybe you see the tears in their eyes or you see them stand up and they grab a pen and they start writing on a on a whiteboard. Like, that's what, for me, when, when we talk to entrepreneurs and when angel investors are talking to entrepreneurs like that's what you want to see and yet it's sort of been I don't know there's been this sort of it's all just been made a bit vanilla and a bit flat like get your 14 slides right chuck them out chuck out the pitch deck and then hopefully you'll get investment and and I think what we're missing there is you know the most impactful disruptive angel entrepreneur relationships come when there is a meeting around the purpose of that business the milestones that that entrepreneur needs to hit through their investment round the role that that angel could play in enabling that to happen and that comes through dialogue and from like peeling back the layers of that pitch deck and so i think you know pitch decks yes they serve a purpose but I think too much weight has been put on them because what we really like, we want to get to the good stuff and the good stuff comes when I have an opportunity to see the whites of your eyes and to really understand why you're passionate about solving this problem. Yeah. And, and in a way I do think the pitch decks are serving uh, an asymmetry in terms of kind of, they are, they are geared. They're a language, right? Once you understand the language of them, and yes, there are now a lot of founder tech tools to create good pitch decks, um, which is also a problem in itself because it's yeah. created a signal to noise. Probably, if yeah. all pitch decks look good, how how are those, how is venture capital discerning? You know, quickly. One of those was how it looked and presented. But I think equally, it's for new founders coming in, which I, we we haven't yet touched on. I'm assuming you're, what you're trying to do is amplify uh, new female founders coming in and realizing that they can. Um, you know, have a stake in this conversation and, yeah. and participate. And if, if you don't know the language of the pitch deck and you don't know that it's only looked at for a few seconds and it's just got to tell that story, and I agree they're at best they're storytelling devices, at, yeah. at worst they're torture devices for, you, yeah. <laughs> for the founder that spends three months on like bullet points, changing this, you know, like the font sizes of bullet points. But, um, but I do think I'd like to kind of talk about why you think there are still these the hugely systemic biases against female founders, particularly yeah. new ones coming into the space? Yeah, and and you know, I think in answering that question, we we can touch back on that on that pitch deck point. So, so you know, you mentioned there are founder tech pl- uh, platforms around, you know, writing the most beautiful pitch deck and and that need for founders to know the language and to to know the structure and the positioning and the language of a pitch deck 
you know, ultimately, though, as an entrepreneur, you you want to stand out. So there's an argument to say that actually those those platforms can just make everything feel a bit vanilla. Now, is there a good way to tell a story? Yes, of course there is. And that's been true for millennia, whether it's within an investment setting or not. But I think one of the things we're really passionate about when we look at everything, whether it's pitch decks, whether it's due diligence, whether it's legal process, is about saying, is there a different way to do it that would work better for an audience that the system has overlooked and and quite significantly overlooked. So that rather than, and interestingly, I was, I've been tagged on a post on LinkedIn today on this very topic where, where the person who has added this post is kind of saying, women need to get better at understanding the rules of pitching. Um, and I look at that and go, do they? Or actually, do we need to change the rules around pitching? Because if we're designing, if if we start to recognize that we've got to design for an overlooked audience, then fundamentally our solutions look should look different because that new audience will have a different set of needs. And so if the system isn't doing things differently, then to me, we're not designing for that new audience in a meaningful way. So let's fast forward three, four years, um, what does that look like? What in an ideal world, what, what does that look like? How are these new tools um, not just being used, but how? what's the design ethos that's built into them? How have they um, started to course correct those biases? Like what, what does that look like in your ideal world? Um, yeah. when you when you when you wake up and you get on that first call, yeah. what are you, what are you, I'm sure it's on your whiteboard. What, what, what yeah, is, yeah. What, where are you heading with that? Yeah. So, so I guess if I start with outcomes and then, then let me come yeah. back to yeah. how we get there. So, you know, the outcomes are really, really simple. We need more, di- we, we need to grow the angel investor population and we need to grow the diversity within that population. The same is true within the VC space. We need to diversify the population who are making decisions around where VC funding is placed. Um, and, and we need to be able to measure that really, really clearly. Now, if we are improving on those two uh, fa- factors, metrics, then what we will see is an increase in the level of investment placed in overlooked entrepreneurs. So, so what I would want to see in the future is that across each of those three metrics, we're seeing rapid improvement. How do we get there? For me and for us at Obu, it's a question of inclusive design. And it's about saying, let's demonstrate that if you apply an inclusive design approach to, in this case, financial services products, you drive up participation. And that's not rocket science. It's a really simple approach to saying, we know that those populations, whether it is entrepreneurs who receive investment or its angel investors or its VCs, we know that those populations are largely homogenous. If we take an inclusive design approach to each of those areas and we say, you know what, there is a population who are not being served at the moment, they're being overlooked. Let's understand their experience around money, finance, wealth, investment, and let's design solutions that meet that experience and therefore those needs 
if we do that, our work in hypothesis at OBU is we will drive up participation. And specifically for us, if we take an inclusive design approach to angel investing and early stage entrepreneurship, we will both increase and diversify the number of angel investors in the UK. And therefore, we will also increase the level of investment that's placed in overlooked entrepreneurs. But it's all about taking that very... um, empathy-led, let me understand your experience-led approach to product design and service design? Yeah, so we touched on this just before, you know, we pressed record, that one of the key um, aspects of Founder Tech, for me, the most interesting, that I'd like to kind of add, you know, put a plus sign and add add to what you just said. So there's, so it's, it's the behavioral aspect no, so founder tech, you can you of course is about better design tools that, that are more agile, open, more transparent, um, that a new wave of founders and investors just want to use, you know, as business as usual. It's just that they just the, the future has to be um people just using these tools, right? And it levels off imbalances and it opens up opportunities. And one of the things that's come um, up recently is that um and, and this is this has changed since um the last uh, series, which was about six months ago, is that uh, venture is looking to, for founders and giving status to founders that can uh, achieve more with less so that they are using these tools to show um, and one of the signals to the VC that they are a really interesting founder is that they are, are using tools, founder textile tools, properly to achieve more with less capital, to hit traction and milestones that are often pre-revenue, pre-product, but where they are demonstrating their, that they are this kind of new new crop of founders so what i wanted to just sort of add in as well as as well as that that perspective is is this idea of sort of behavioral design um how do you think about that aligned to the sort of inclusive design or do you see them as the same yeah i think i think really linked and i think um you know there's there's almost that question isn't there around you know, what comes first? Is it the technology change or is it the culture change? And and for me, what, you know, what we need to accelerate and, and, you know, let's be really clear, it is happening, but what we need to accelerate is courageous leadership that is brave enough to ask, why does this work in this way? Why does this need to function or operate like this? And, and it's those questions that enable us to drive meaningful innovation. But it takes it takes quite courageous leadership to, to stand or operate within a sector that has worked in a particular way for so long and to say, well, does it have to work like that? You know, does due diligence need to look like that? Do pitch decks need to look like that? Yeah. Does, does supporting legislation need to look like that? And and I think it's it's that courageous leadership, which, by the way, needs to come from diverse leaders that then starts to shape and mould our culture, that then starts to shape and inform the decisions we make around how we use technology. And I think I think that 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 culture change piece is crucial. And, And like I said at the start, there are that's happening you know, in the angel space, in the VC space, in the entrepreneur space, we're seeing brave, courageous leaders out there doing things differently. And and so it's then the question of, well, how do we bring people together to share learning, to share experience so that we can accelerate that change? How do we think about 
policy and legislation that enables that change to happen? What is it that we're backing and that we're investing that accelerates that change? Because, you know, I think often when you work in a space that is about serving an overlooked audience, you know, one of the challenges that you can get is, you know, and I I get it, oh, you're banging the feminist drum. Actually, the drum I'm banging is that I want great economic output. I want a thriving innovation ecosystem. I want to see more exciting job opportunities in businesses that are solving a more diverse set of problems. Like, that that's the drum I'm sort of sat here going this is what we need to be doing and yes I come at that through through a gender and intersectionality lens but it's for those outcomes that are good for everybody within our society and and I think that's why it's incumbent on on all of us regardless of gender to say you know what this is a problem that deserves to be solved because the outcomes of solving this problem are are really positive for all of us so, so just to echo back what I've heard, because it's super interesting. So your, your, your sort of North Star is that actually we need to unlock economic growth, mm-hmm. which is clear, you know, to everybody. Um, and we need mm-hmm. to start being a lot more innovative and, you know, seeing the problems that we've got tackled in different ways. And the way to unlock that economic growth is that if so much talent is not being um, even addressed or unlocked or, 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 or um, met um, with opportunity, then that has you have to be able to connect the, the, the two, that we're not going to achieve that economic growth unless we start looking elsewhere. So rather than start from a, the, the position of gender of we need more female founders, which is one approach, yours and Claire's approach is to go, actually, we if we did this, it will unlock economic growth and therefore more female founders and more diversity within female founders has to has to contribute to that unlocking of that economic growth. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, 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 exactly that. And you know, economic growth, innovation output, productivity, increased likelihood of hitting ESG goals. Yeah, like the, these are all things that will happen as a result of diversifying where investment is placed. And again, th- those outcomes are good for all of us. Yeah. Um, so when you, I'd like to hear without mentioning names, like I'd like to hear sort of the most encouraging dialogue, which we should always mention names, but I also hear like when you sort of, and we all have this, right? The conversation when you're beating your head against the wall, you know, you're not being understood. You and Claire sort of, you know, like what what happened? Why is this still the case? Could we have a kind of, let's start with like the, the most sort of uh, polluted signal to noise, like old school, um, um, walls that you're coming across and then let's flip that and go with the, actually the really encouraging new types of conversations yeah okay so I'll um this is like therapy <laughs> <laughs> it has been said before but yeah it, it, well it's because we all want to talk about this stuff right there isn't that many, many forums to do so so yeah yeah well, it, um, just to be fair I'm not a qualified therapist just for the uh, for, for sort of for, uh, for uh, yeah the small print there. exactly exactly mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think it's, I think it's really important to give voice to the negative experiences if it fuels our dis- dissatisfaction in a way that then drives us to action. Um, and, and I remember someone kind of, I, I talked to someone in my leadership career a number of years ago around, 
like he said to me, Sarah, you've got to fuel your dissatisfaction. What's the thing that you're frustrated by in the world? What do you think could be better? And and I think I think that's why giving voice to the things that are frustrating is in, is important because then we can do that translation into so what what action are we going to create on the back of that? So so I guess the the thing that came to mind straight away when you asked me that question was, um, and it it might seem micro. But I speak to entrepreneurs all of the time for who this happens. So I was in conversation with a VC who um, was talking about the fact that our pitch deck at Obu had been seen by his team. And and his comment was... um, Oh, that's those two girls in Bridge in Nottingham who are who are trying to build a fintech, isn't it? Is that what he said? Yeah, okay. and I sat there and thought, wow, two girls in Bridgeford in, <laughs> in Nottingham who are trying to build a fintech. I mean, <laughs> what do you do with that? And and it's like yeah. I said, on the one hand, you know, and if I had bitten and reacted to that, the feedback would have been on me, and that I was being difficult, but you know, we're really fortunate in, in Nottingham in the East Midlands to have a number of really successful fintech entrepreneurs who have spun out of organizations that I've worked in previously. And I guarantee that they haven't been described as those two boys in Nottingham that are trying to build a fintech. Like, I just guarantee that that is not language that will have been used around them. And I think it's it then just puts you on that footing of, you know, and, and was this person being um, aggressive or negative? No, it it was a throwaway comment, but it's a throwaway comment that reflects the lack of credibility that is given to entrepreneurs who are saying, you know what, there is an under, uh, underserved, overlooked audience, and we're going to disrupt the sector that you operate in to address that problem. And and there's almost a bit of a kind of, are you? <laughs> um, and and you know that conversation happens every week. It happens to me. It happens to Claire. It yeah. happens to the other entrepreneurs we work with. And it just gets a bit boring and a bit tiring. Well, this is more about him than than you. Have you had the one I've heard this come up where uh, female founders are asked like, well, how are you going to pick your kids up from school and stuff like that? Yeah. Like just just questions yeah. that no 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 yeah. male founder would ever be asked. Yeah, you yeah. must have heard all those terrible, shocking, shocking ones as yeah. well. Yeah, that's a whole other episode. We yeah, need to go to those. Yeah, right. Yeah. We'll, we'll do that with a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so give well, us the good news. Give us the good news, right? Because I think everybody listening to this is, knows those biases. And even like if someone's listening and thinking, "Oh, I do that," as you're saying, it's not because they're a villain. It's just because they haven't thought about it properly. And and this is part of the problem: the inherent biases that are just there. Um, there are some bad actors, but like in any system, there's those are those are outliers. So let's talk about the the, the, the really like the, the, the positive signs, like the, the the shifts that you're seeing, which make you you know make you feel encouraged. Yeah. So I guess, so, you know, there's a couple of things here. So if I think back in Obu's history, the fact that we were able to successfully lobby the Treasury and central government to change seed enterprise investment scheme legislation, like we are a small business, a micro business in the Midlands. Um, If you want to label us differently, we are, you know, we're two mums building a fintech and we're juggling the reality of life alongside building a disruptive business. And yet we were able to 
figure out that pathway through the civil service and government to say this legislation is creating an invisible barrier and and we're calling on you to to change that legislation so that we can fuel investment in early stage diverse founded businesses and that was a success Sarah, so, can you just that's super interesting let's not just pass over that and obviously a real achievement can you just give us what what was the invisible barrier and just sort of spell it out for people listening yeah, to us yeah. who might not even know most people know what SCIS is but if you just give us that like you know that that case study that would be great yeah yeah so the seat enterprise investment scheme or SCIS is a a program set up by the government, really brilliant program that provides tax incentives to angel investors. Now, for a business to qualify um, for that, um, for SEIS, it has to hit a number of criteria. And one of those criteria was that the age of your business when you apply for that scheme can't be greater than two years old. Um, when Claire and I did our first investment round, we hit our SEIS deadline with just 48 hours to spare yeah. in the middle of the pandemic whilst we were homeschooling and, and kind of sat back and looked at that experience and said, bloody hell, like, why is that deadline set at two years? And I guess with an inclusive design lens, kind of why is that deadline set at two years when, you know, women entrepreneurs are more likely to have care responsibilities and therefore there are additional draws on their time. You know, women entrepreneurs are less likely to even know that that scheme exists, let alone have an established angel network that they can tap into. Um, Because of their gender or the color of their skin, they're more likely to receive a no when they go out into that angel investor population, either because of, you know, outright sexism and racism, or because those angels will say, you know what, I haven't experienced that problem, therefore this doesn't resonate for me, therefore that I'm not going to invest. So we kind of looked at it and we were like, there are all of these factors for overlooked entrepreneurs that impact time. And wouldn't it be interesting if that deadline was extended from two years to three years? So we created the Over Being Underfunded campaign. It was a grassroots campaign. We hustled our way through that campaign. The outcome of that campaign was that from April this year, the deadline was extended from two years to three years for all entrepreneurs. And I think that's a really great example whereby when you take an inclusive design approach and you understand not just a homogenous audience's experience, but actually you broaden that out, you get to a solution where you say, you know what, this isn't just good for the audience that we're, that has previously been overlooked. This outcome is good for everybody. And, and to me, that's just the, like, that's the epitome of what inclusive design should be all about. It's about saying, let's Let's broaden that lens. Let's let's widen the audience that that we're looking at to understand their experience, because the truth is they do have a different experience. And when we design solutions with that in mind, hey, you know what? There, there's positive outcome for for everybody here. It's such a brilliant example, and congratulations. I mean, it's so. I think it it really embodies, you know, this kind of put the economic gain first, see the yeah. opportunity through a. Uh, diversity and gender you know like actually 
like you said, when you when you when you sort of said it, it, it sounds so obvious, but the idea that if you are coming from a different background, then it's going to take longer for people to potentially understand what the problem you're trying to navigate, and therefore that two years impacts massively because not having SCIS makes you immediately it makes it you know so much harder. And as you said, it is a brilliant thing that we have in this country that everybody's envious of in other countries they um but that's such a great example of like and then you you thought actually we're going to tackle that so as we start to come to a close are there other things on your hit list you and Claire like tick that one up SEIS uh you know two years three years done what's what's your other sort of top top two hit list of um things you want to change I feel like you've sussed us already. Yeah, I, I, I can see your whiteboard. It's, it's there. Right. Smiley face, two years, three years, right, next. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think, you know, I think that what that reflects is that we need change across product and service design. We need change across regulation. We need change across legislation. And, and it's about... It's about bringing all of those things together. So, so if I look at things on my wish list, um, you know, let let's take um, FCA regulation. So we've already said angel investing is a high risk asset class. You can lose all of your money, and therefore, the FCA quite rightly looks at that investment activity and says, you know what, we need to protect customers in this situation. So, so that is, or within that kind of transaction. So that is absolutely a given and, and we 100% back that position. However, if you are trying to engage an audience in angel investing who historically haven't participated, so in the UK only 14% of angel investors are women, if, if you're trying to engage that audience in an activity that you know, they have capital to play that role. They also have wisdom and experience and networks to enable them to play that role. If you go out to them and your lead message is angel investing is high risk, you could lose all of your money. Here are all of the reasons not to do it. Actually, you, you've kind of stopped the conversation before it's even begun. Yeah. And, and I think there's a really interesting question in there around, how do we interpret those regulations and how do we work with the FCA to say, you know what? Yes, we need to communicate that angel investing is high risk, but we need to do that in a way that isn't alarmist. And therefore, let's look at the language that we use in disclaimers or where and how we have to place those disclaimers. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, what's happened is some of those requirements have been put in place on the back of some really, really poor behavior within the financial services sector. And so I understand why they are there. But I guess in the next chapter of this story around regulation on financial promotions, like, let's not negatively impact a new audience of people who could be actively participating in financial services because of the sins of the people who came before us. Does that make sense? It makes it's complete kind of, sense. Yeah. Complete, complete sense. Um, okay. Again, we could talk about that, this for, for ages, but we, we, we need to start to wrap up. So let's just talk about how, what with Obu, tell us for people listening to this, you know, investors, founders, particularly female founders, what is it that you are focused on? What are the sectors you're focused on? The type of capital? I think you've just um, uh, made two investments, right? Or two raises. Like maybe, maybe talk about 
yeah, talk about that um, in, in terms of, so people listening can kind of really get a sense of what you're focused on and what the platform does. Thank you. So, so if I think about our investment thesis, there, there are a couple of things that are really, really important. So I think we talked about it before we hit, rec hit record. I really believe that business can be a force for good and that businesses can be commercially strong, profitable, and at the same time have a positive societal impact. So when we look at the types of investment opportunities that we present on our investment platform, they will always have that as a core tenant or a core pillar to, to their reason for being. Um, so, you know, business that values both that, that purpose and, and that profit dimension. Um, you know, we're early stage, as you mentioned, we've just closed the first two investment rounds on our platform. One was in a femtech moody month. The other was in a SaaS platform called proper plan. We're going through that, that process at the moment of kind of saying which, which types of sectors, which types of businesses feel right for our platform within that lens of business being a force for good and what types of businesses do a more diverse collective of angel investors want to be investing in? So if I look at our platform, we have femtech, we have edtech, we have businesses that are really focused very creatively on the sustainability agenda and, and kind of environmental impact. Um, businesses that are looking at um, the fashion sector and kind of sustainability there. What's true about them all is that they have this, this desire and ambition for scale, not only in the UK, but in international markets. So, you know, these are really ambitious entrepreneurs who want to build highly um, successful commercial and profitable organisations alongside that, that drive for purpose. We're looking at raises between... 250,000 and around the million point. So businesses that can demonstrate some level of traction in terms of revenue generation, even if it's early stage. Um, and, and doing those investment rounds whereby part of that investment comes through Obu Angels on our platform, but part of it also comes through partnership with VCs or funds or other angel networks because, you know, for us, the problem to solve here is significant and it's not one single investment platform or one single angel network or one single VC that's going to solve this equality issue. We need to come together and collaborate and share learning and invest together for all of those reasons I've already described that are good for everybody. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I'm, I'm sensing... Um, I, ha I haven't looked it up. I'm sensing Obu must mean something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what does uh, it mean? So Obu comes from our over being underfunded. Ah, okay. And and honestly, so I'll, I'll share a bit of behind the scenes with you. Um, we're really fortunate at Obu with um, the advisors and the board members that we have, and. As a core team, we were thinking about what our business name should be and, you know, going through the, the thing of, well, we're a fintech, so it needs to be something catchy yeah. and it needs, you know, all of that yeah. stuff. And we've been kicking it around for weeks and weeks. And then I, I got in touch with one of our board members um, 
who's the chief marketing officer at What Three Words. And I was like, Charles, we're trying to figure this out. And have you got any thoughts? Honestly, 30 minutes later, he came back with Obu. And I was like, Obu, that's cool. Where does that come from? And he was like, Sarah, you're over being underfunded campaign. <laughs> Are those your what three words, though, where you're located? Because that would be, like, really on point. Like, no, yeah, they're not. I mean, you're, you're like radiator, pineapple, zebra or something. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it was just one of those moments where you're like, and that's why you sit on our board, because we've been kicking around this around for weeks. That's great. And, uh, that's great. <laughs> I bet you'll find there's some other meaning to that. That, like the downstream, like three three years time, you'll you'll be in somewhere, you're overseas, right. and someone will say, You do know Obu means, and you'll be like, Really? Like it's completely, <laughs> completely aligned. Yeah, we knew that all the time, obviously. Obviously. Yeah, hopefully it's aligned and not something else. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I wish we could get into more sort of like horror stories and also good good news stories, because I do think I do think there is a there is a change that's happening. And I do think it's not mm. I think I think this all makes sense when there's it's economic, as you said, there's no appetite and everybody can see like the the shift is in um everybody's interests um you know and it's not about gender it's not about diversity it's about unlocking capacity you know late a latent entrepreneurial entrepreneurial capacity and i think everybody can kind of see that the problems that we have the ones that are most valuable to solve are 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 lying in these kind of you know these scalable niches these 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 deep and it's the and it's the founders that are immersed in those that have reputational capital invested in that that are respected that you know that are credible that those are the new founders that we need to back and and help kind of get off the ground and 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 as you've so sort of eloquently laid out that of course those are going to come from different backgrounds and they're going to be thinking about things differently otherwise we're just going to be addressing the same founders over and over again which which is uh which is obviously not going to lead anywhere new so thank you so much for kind of making that really really clear as i said we i've wanted to have this sort of deep dive into the space but i didn't realize it would go into the space of inclusive design particularly allied to 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 the economic part which is absolutely fascinating so thank you sarah for uh for for taking the time to share share all that with with us oh i've really enjoyed it it's been a really great conversation thank you for having me pleasure Founder Tech Decoded. Founder Tech Decoded. Founder Tech Decoded. Founder Tech Decoded.